Episode 2. What's the worst that could happen? American Healthcare and Insurance. We're live. Welcome to the What Else You Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. David Henderson, the podcast that embraces the barroom banter medical facts to scratch your itch and thoughts from your doctors that don't know everything. The typical disclaimers apply. No one on the show is representing any academic or medical institution. Our opinions are our own and none of our content constitutes any medical advice or replaces your relationship with your personal physician. Joining me today is Dr. Andrew as my co-host, as well as Dr. Nick and Dr. Matt, who are family medicine trained, uh, direct primary care physicians, um, and we will talk about what that means more in the next episode. Someone's opening a beer. What do you got? Oh, yeah, I'm drinking... uh, Unless it's a Coca-Cola. New Belgium um, Mixed Pack 1985 IPA. Ooh. What do you guys have? Uh, well, I have a uh, train wreck, uh, which is amber ale brewed with maple syrup and honey. Oh, is that from that from, place in Mount Pleasant? Yeah, Mountain Town. Mountain Town. Nice. It's a nice beer. Nice, man. Yeah. That's decent. Uh, it's we have a uh, Ballast Point Sculpin IPA here. Oh, that's a good right. one. What don't, do you ask Nick what, don't, don't ask Nick what he has. <laughs> Drinking a water, mm-hmm. <laughs> a seltzer. I am. <laughs> it's a bubbly. Well, so I made it up north here to, to the Houghton Lake area, and there was a lot of people in the gas station with no masks, and I opted to uh, not go inside. That's fair. <laughs> yeah, that is fair. That's fair. <laughs> yeah. So here we are. Awesome. It would have been. It would have been a two-hearted. That's specifically what I was hunting for. Oh man, yeah, that stuff goes down easy all the time. So good. Once it hits your lips. Yeah, once it hits your lips. Can can you guys hear Andrew okay? Or is he oh yeah. Quiet? No, I can hear it just fine. Awesome. Am uh am I coming through okay? I had to choose between bad Wi-Fi and moderate signal. No, I you sound great too, man. All right, cool. Yeah. All right. Your voice sounds better than you look. Thank you. Uh, the opposite of Andrew. Well, <laughs> that's why that's why we're doing a podcast, gentlemen, and not a video series. <laughs> we all have faith. We all have faces for radio. <laughs> we should not be bloggers. <laughs> What's your name? I'll go with Dr. Andrew. Dr. Andrew. All right, perfect. Um, so you guys um talked a little bit about what we wanted to talk about today, but like what were you guys thinking about a good place to start would be? I mean, I, at least when you had put it out there as far as like, what's the kind of the design of the system? Um, you know, we had kind of just brainstormed back and forth and talked about the, you know, the public versus private and the kind of the little bit of the history of employer sponsored insurance and, and that kind of that aspect of it. And then the kind of the idea of, um, the financial incentives in medicine and uh, fee for service, like that kind of that kind of thing. 
just to start. And then I don't know how deep you want to get in this, Dave, or whatnot, but as far as, you know, logistics with Medicare, Medicaid, you know, we could kind of go so many, it's like an onion, man. So many layers. We uh, um, we took your advice and and kind of thought through it as far as, you know, we first talked through it from the provider perspective, which usually isn't how we think of it. We usually talk about it from the patient perspective um, between me and Matt. Um, But then we also got into that. and, And a lot of it on both ends came down to access. So I'm sure we'll find our way towards that and transparency. Yeah, that's perfect. I, I think that's a good way to go about it. Because, um, you know, I want it to be something where the patients, or I, I'm sorry, the general public who hopefully will be listening to this podcast can appreciate, you know, because they've had like frustrations and, you know, um, difficulties in accessing medical care from insurance standpoint. But it'd be great to know like what our beef too, so that we can appreciate that really no one's really happy with this system. Right. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like, uh, I feel like yeah. there aren't too many people that are happy with this system. Is that fair? Oh, man, we just we just had a – this is outside the topic, but we just had a patient email us about a medicine for enemas, and we were just talking about how much – never mind. All right, that's way off topic. Sorry. But. <laughs> I think you should finish yeah. it, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so he's, he's, he's having a little bit of a flare. <laughs> And he wants some Kanaka. <laughs> Anyone want to take a running guess at how much a suppository of mesalamine costs? For 30 of them. For 30 of them. No. You're right. $1,600. <laughs> Anyone want to guess what the wholesale price is if we buy it? I'll tell you. 120 which is still a lot. But Wow. That is a big difference. Yeah, GoodRx is still GoodRx and RX Saver both had around two hundred. So, huh? See, that's insane. Like, that's like the prime example of of this like price insensitivity, right? Oh yeah, don't get us wrong. Especially if you're bringing us back to talk VPC, we we got all kinds of stuff for that. <laughs> well, well, I'll be back in a couple of weeks, and we'll talk about alternatives to the current system, which there are many. Um, yeah. And you guys are great, but um, yeah, let's start with um, like, how the hell did we get in this situation in the first place? So, like, how did this evolve this health insurance system? Let's start there. Whoever wants to start. So, um, the dates may be a little bit off as far as years or whatnot, but from what I remember, really, the idea of health insurance started. It didn't really become super popular until around kind of World War II time, but really it started kind of in the mid to late 1920s. Um, and I think the first organization was started by a teacher union um, in the Texas area. So it was just started like this really small idea of, you know, having coverage for, for health services. But then once the demand for work was so large around the World War II time, and then the supply was so small, they had to figure out ways to uh, with the different um, like wage stagnation and whatnot, they had to try to figure out interesting ways to try to keep employees around. So I forget what what bill was passed, but it essentially allowed health insurance to be outside of the income, uh, like the upper limit of income that you're allowed to give your employees during World War II. So companies started offering these health insurance benefits um, to their employees. And I believe that was in, I, f- I forget exactly what year, but um, 
I think that was kind of where the initial takeoff of the employer-sponsored insurance really, really happened. And if you guys have any more specifics on the dates or whatnot, but that's my understanding of it was was right around the World War II time. No, I, you're right on. Um, and then it was like, you know, those incentives around wartime, they were like officialized, I think, in 1954 with the Revenue Act, where the tax deductions were kind of standardized and and um, because that's that's the whole point of having our insurance built into our reimbursement, right? Is like our employers can be paying us way more money, but they choose not to, or at the time of World War II, they couldn't because the wages were fixed. And so they had to right. come up with some other way to incentivize workers to work for them. So they said, all right, here's another carrot. We'll just pay for your medical care, right? Dangle the carrot. Yeah, I got so much dangling. Um, <laughs> World War II for sure. <laughs> all right. So, so that's how it, it kind of started as far as like, um, you know, why it was like employer sponsored, right? Correct. Okay. And then what happened after World War II in the 1950s? Um, so I, I believe it was in the, I'm just trying to remember the exact years here. Um, <clears throat> I'm trying to remember if that's exactly when the public health, maybe it was in the 1960s that that started as far as Medicare, unless that was in the 50s. I don't remember. Yeah. Um, no, you're right. The man. idea of, kind of public Johnson, health coverage. Yeah. Lyndon Johnson signed Medicare, Medicaid. Or like the um, the doctor medical uh, lingo for it is CMS, right? So that was like correct nineteen sixty five. And I think some of the caveats as far as who is, you know, who is now covered on Medicaid versus or Medicare versus you know who was covered back in the sixties was there's been massive changes in that, um, you know, with people with people who are on dialysis, chronic liver disease. I think all those have been changes that have happened really since the sixties. Yeah, I don't know. I don't... I'm sorry. What'd you say, Matt? Oh no, go ahead. No, I cut you off completely. Oh, I was gonna say I'm not. I'm not too familiar with the history from like the '60s essentially to like the '90s, um, but uh, that's about the extent of what I remember. Uh, do you have anything to add? No. Oh. Oh. All right. So, so let me. I'll just um, bridge the gap a little bit then. So you're absolutely right. Like Medicare was kind of designed for people with like essentially disabilities, right? And like pretty severe diseases because they couldn't get insurance coverage and they were a big um, burden as far as like the costs on themselves, right? Of, of Medicare. Um, and so um, everyone recognized that medical costs were going up though during this period because we had these um, insurance companies were paying for a bulk of medical care and doctors and hospitals were just charging more and more money for this care because um, a certain percentage of the population, they weren't getting insurance and they were also defaulting on paying their medical costs, right? And so the way to solve that with the, the medical systems was, well, we'll charge the, the people that are insured more money and that will help balance out the costs for the system. So essentially the people that didn't have insurance were getting a free ride and the people that had insurance um, were paying more money or the insurances were paying more money um, because of like increasing costs. Is that fair? Is that fair? Yeah. 
Okay. So then, which in and of itself points out an, an interesting uh, nuance, or one would might say flaw to the system, where the idea of an insurance-based system is that you are dividing your risk among the pool of insured, but the nature of the system of healthcare uh, healthcare delivery within the system basically doesn't allow for those pools to be completely separated one way or another. Mm-hmm. Right. We essentially so use insurance as a... Of that system, we've already l- linked these two pools together here. Nick, were you going to say something? No, I, I just... Oh. Um, it had popped into my head a while ago that it's. I was explaining this thing, this exact situation to a patient and trying to put into terms how we use insurance in this in this country it's more like a currency than it is an insurance system absolutely yeah it's it's like um it's a healthcare delivery system or a payer system not an insurance system right correct um and and that's why we have you know suppositories that cost I'm oh, sorry, the charge is $1,600 for a repository, which you're just literally dumping that money in the toilet um, <laughs> versus the cost of it, which you said was 160 bucks, and that's way different, right? Oh, not even. Less than that, but still. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, even, you know, absolutely, really the difference between the cost and the price, um, and yeah, I mean, we got examples uh, you know, up the wazoo, <laughs> up the <laughs> butt. <laughs> you guys, to go. My, my a little rusty here. It's been a little while since we uh, had, uh, you know, specific anatomy course. Where again is the wazoo? <laughs> Apparently they don't prescribe anything other than suppositories. Yeah. So, is that, is that specialty W per wazoo? <laughs> Oh my gosh! I, I almost couldn't get those words out. I started laughing before I could say. <laughs> um, no, but there's just so many examples out there of, you know, and I, I'm going to give this example. I guess maybe this get a little off topic of history, but um, one of my family members had to get some blood work done and had to get a thyroid test, and the out of pocket cost after the insurance kicked in was eighty three dollars out of pocket for just doing one test on the thyroid. And I thought this was absolutely insane. And that's kind of when we started looking into other different ways of delivering healthcare and whatnot and trying to find cash pricing. And we could end up getting it for $5 without any insurance. Um, so just the idea of kind of bringing it back around with, you know, the insurance people who have insurance or the, in, or the insurance companies paying more to try to pick up slack in other areas doesn't make sense at all. Um, it just ends up raising costs. Well, and I think to piggyback off of that you know, and bring it a little bit back towards history is so many people now don't remember what it was like before insurance really took over, but that was within our lifetime, more or less. Yeah, I was talking, I was at a house call today, believe it or not, with a patient and we were talking more or less about this and, and she had said, um, I can't believe it. You know, just the way things used to be were so different. I, a, she was talking about how her insurance would cover anything back in the day, um, but B, things were just priced very differently um or a few of us have worked with with the same doc and in, in the bar and center area who 
uh, I can't remember offhand, but Matt, do you remember what he charged for his office visits when he opened? Oh, it was like $18. Yeah. And oh, I wow. think if I recall, it was $18. <laughs> and I remember yeah. this part because a, a nurse came from the hospital to see him as a patient and said he was overcharging people because he was a young doctor <laughs> at the time. And he's been in practice maybe 30 years now, a little over. So we're not talking, you know, the stone age here. Right. No, the costs just keep going up and up. And I think tied to this too is like, so, you know, people were recognizing that this was a problem, right? That um, the costs were going up because people were kind of gaming the system, right? And that, you know, if they're going to get insurance at all, it would be after they already became sick too, right? Hmm. And, and that's where, where a talk of this individual mandate first started. Um, and it started in, in 1989 um, as an idea from the Heritage Foundation. And this was like an ultra-conservative right-wing think tank. Um, it was like really involved with um, Reagan's presidency. And they're thinking, hey, man, well, we have to have an individual mandate to save us from universal health care. Um, because we need to save these insurance companies because they're just going to have to pay more and more money um, for trying to like cover the health costs of everyone, including if their panel gets sicker and sicker and sicker because people only get insurance after they became super sick, right? And so right. that's kind of how the individual mandate was kind of like brought about. And that's, um, maybe I should explain that a little bit better too, because that's like, um, you know, that was the problem with, um, that a lot of people had with the ACA is everyone had to buy insurance in order for anyone to have insurance. Um, so even if you were young and healthy, the system required you to some extent to buy insurance or you received, um, a, uh, like a penalty on your, on your income, um, tax. And so, um, it really incentivized you to buy insurance, but essentially, that's to avoid this problem of, you know, people who are only buying insurance after they become sick and then the insurance company is having to, like, pay more money for your care without the time where, you know, you're paying money into the system while you're healthy. So this Heritage Foundation um, proposed this individual mandate. It didn't get a whole lot of steam, um, but it was included in um, Mitt Romney's healthcare reform in Massachusetts in 2006 where they had universal health care in massachusetts um and uh essentially it, it had a penalty um in place for people that didn't buy into this universal health care system um in the way of state income tax um and then that progressed to um essentially obamacare or the aca affordable care act um which is you know, basically like a, a replication of that Massachusetts universal health care um, insurance reform, right? Right. Um, but the ACA still isn't perfect. Like it's, it's not like the solution for the problem, right? <laughs> right. So, no, I agree with that for sure. Go ahead. Sorry. So, so what is? Why isn't it good? Well, I think some, at least from my perspective, you know, being relatively aware of what some of the services, you know, actually cost and the different amounts of care that people need, you know, I think this idea of insurance companies 
you know, quote unquote, covering everyday services. Like, you know, if you go see your primary care doctor for, you know, your, your, whether wellness visit or, or even if you need to see them because you get poison ivy or something, this idea that, you know, you pay a copay and then the insurance company has to pay on top of that, um, you know, just seems a little bit odd. I think the idea behind everyone having a covered wellness check is a good idea, um, but I'm not so sure about the cost execution of that. <laughs> right. And, uh, and to that same are, point, you know, your, your colonoscopy is covered, but if they take a biopsy, it's not. You know, it, it's the essence of compromise in a lot of ways. You know, it, it, no one left happy from that decision um, with well, the way the ACA turned out. Um, and it, it's the same system. We just kind of fudge the line a little bit. And yeah, I, I think I'll, I'll spare a lot of my thoughts about other systems for, for a different day. Um, but in some ways, a lot of people complain about the ACA and, and I don't understand the complaints. They seem very politically charged, but not very um, based in statistics or numbers or, or much like that, or, or at least the whole picture. You can always find something to fit your argument, um, which by the way, Dr. Dave, liked your first uh, podcast that addressed that in part. Thanks, <laughs> man. Um, but I, you know, one of the things I, I think about is um, the. Oh, I just lost it. Um, not only the idea of covering, uh, you know, the wellness visits and and whatnot. Um, oh, jeez, I just lost it. Someone else has a thought. Go ahead. It'll come so, back. So not me. your first sale tonight, eh? Yeah. <laughs> There's four other way. Um, Where's that yeah. second beer? Thought <laughs> juice. Uh, it's like it's face jam, Michael's juice. Um, yeah. so, so I want to round out a couple thoughts. So like, um, that's a really good point about colonoscopies of like how stupid this system is. Is like the screening is covered, but if you find cancer then the patient is saddled with a couple thousand dollar bill because the colonoscopy changes to a diagnostic study. Right. I mean, that, that's bananas. You know what I mean? Well, I can't yeah. even, uh, I don't, and part of want to talk about frustrations. There's a big one for me. I can't tell you the number of times we've gotten calls and when I've worked in the insurance-based system of patients calling, well, I had to get this colonoscopy because I've had blood in my stool. Why does it cost, you know, thousands of dollars? It should be covered. Colonoscopies are covered. And then you have to explain to them, well, no, they're not. And it doesn't matter if you've had this conversation before they got it done or not, by the way. But but it's a huge frustration because there is that underlying expectation, even when you tell someone, yeah, this probably isn't going to be covered. Um, yeah, and it's similar with the, you know, with the wellness visit in general. If you go there and nothing is, and something is not well, you're probably going to get an extra bill for it. Um, you know, the idea of having your yearly physical covered, but if you go in cause you had a runny nose or something and your, you know, your doctor or whoever bills a wellness code, but they're also bill an upper respiratory infection, you're going to get that bill for a second visit. So oftentimes that'll be a 95 or a hundred dollar bill out of pocket, you know, on top of your insurance already getting billed for that wellness visit. So people have kind of become this learned helplessness of sorts. So when you go to your yearly physical, they're like, well, I'm just not going to say anything because I'm just going to get billed yeah. um, on top of what I thought was going to be covered in the first place. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's, 
the screwy model. <laughs> and and to build off of that, you know, with the physical, I, I can't tell you how much guilt I felt. I remember being a resident and having it drilled. You have to bill too. It's against your insurance contracts to do anything else. You, know, you can get in trouble for not doing this. You have to do it the way that it's supposed to be done. And you're sitting here knowing you're just dealing with someone's cold. You know, they came in for their physical and they have a cold or they have that skin tag that they wanted you to look at. But that's not part of a physical. Now it's abnormal. And it, it, it's very frustrating. And, and honestly, I think guilt is, is probably the best word I can think of for what I feel. But again, you got to. Yeah. And one interesting thing I point out that, you know, I try not to take personally, but the idea that, you know, you, people say that their doctor billed them extra. You know, the doctors aren't doing any of the billing. Um, you know, it's everyone in the background that's doing all this billing. And even if I, you know, document certain things in my note, but someone on the back end could end up changing how I bill or what code I bill or what level I bill, which can add an extra charge to the patient. And it's nothing that the physician or, or provider did, um, but it's just something that happened on the back end that someone dug through and said, well, you had enough physical exam or you you managed another problem or you should have built this instead of this and it just changes and a lot of times you don't even know that happens actually this and, would be a great spot um so like people don't know how things work right like right. with a doctor's <laughs> visit and how it ends up being a charge so like how does it go from a patient going to a doctor's office to a bill in the mail can anyone like break that down Oh, geez. Um, well, I'll start with it depends. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So short summary, um, you know, the idea of, of coding and billing are two separate things, which initially we, I think I'm trying to remember the exact dates that this started, but was it the 70s or 80s? They first started coming out with the CPT codes as far as procedures. Mm-hmm. And then this has since evolved into... Um, you know, diagnostic codes, not only for procedures, but for general office visits. So when, you know, when I see someone in the office, I'm evaluating them on a certain, on few, on a couple different points. Um, so the history, you know, as far as, you know, social history, any concerns that they have, you're evaluating them based on physical exam. And then you're also evaluating them based on essentially medical decision-making. So are you going to order medicines? Are you going to order lab tests? Are you going to order procedural tests? Which you know, is like essentially a, like how complex the, the the deal is that they're coming for, right? Correct. It's the idea, anyways. Yeah. 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 And then you get a there's a point system that kind of determines well what what level of service is this? Is it low complexity? Is it moderate complexity? Or is it high complexity? Um, and it's also dip, dip, different point system depending on if it's a new patient to you or the system or if it's a existing or or already an established patient. Um, so you're going to send in based on the point system that you have and how much evaluation and management and how much history or how much physical you do, you can, that pretty much determines your billing code. Now, as a, as a physician, we put in those billing codes based on, you know, I don't necessarily count out every single piece myself. I kind of have a good, good gestalt of what's a, you know, what's a moderate or high or low complexity. Um, but some of these things are changed on the back end. So there's people who are coders and there's people who are billers and they're two totally separate departments um, that we never see. Um, so someone may change a procedure code. Someone may change the billing code. Um, and once that part happens, that gets sent to the you know, insurance company. The insurance is going to come up with a, 
you know, the EOB, the estimation of benefits, which gets sent in the mail, you'll get maybe two or three papers, envelopes in the mail that are completely useless, useless to you. It tells you what, what was charged. And then probably about two to eight weeks later, you'll get your final bill in the mail for if you owe anything for the lab work, for the office visit, anything like that after it goes through your insurance coverage from what I've, my own personal experience. And I'll, I'll, I'll piggyback off that a little bit. One, I don't, there's few groups of people I've seen argue more than coders with billers. They, they <laughs> seem like they have completely different ideas of what you need to do. Okay. Um, what, you know, when, when Matt referred to Gestalt, it, it's true. It is. You, you do kind of learn, but you've just done it so many times. I mean, you're still using this point system that you have to use and, and it changes. You know, if you meet an older doc, they'll tell you, no, you have to bill it this way. And, and the answer is, well, they changed it, you know, three years ago on you and, and no one told you. Yeah. And that's, that's a big frustration. You know, I've, I've known several doctors who got audited by CMS or Medicare later in their careers to find out they were doing something wrong for 10 years and no one told them, you know, there's not necessarily someone checking your work. Um, and you're liable for that, by the way, so they owe a lot of money. Um, and now I'm the one having brain farts. I, I forgot the third one. Probably not important. Oh, no, I know what it was. Uh, the frustration of it. You know, this is one where patients will often call and say, hey, I talked to my insurance and they said that that PSA you were you got me to look for prostate cancer. It's covered if you change the code. And, yeah. and they say everyone expects you. They turn to the doctor. Everyone, you know, you get all these messages. You just got to change it. I can't. I wasn't screening for prostate cancer. They're having symptoms. It's diagnostic. If anyone looks at my note, they'll see that. And that's the issue. You know, it, it, it's legally binding in many ways. You can't just do the thing to help the patient, even though you want to. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, so essentially, I mean, you guys made a good summary, summary of, you know, so much is out of the provider's hands as far as like what the cost is generated, how it's generated, and like what kind of game we're playing. <laughs> yeah if someone asks me what the cost of their get a cbc for them in an insurance-based system i can tell them well i don't know i know it technically costs three dollars and forty cents but i don't know what your insurance <laughs> wow. you. after you know 50 60 70 years everybody's moved in this way that is resembles in no way a system that anyone would design from the ground up but because we allowed this system to have these skewed incentives from the very beginning and moved incrementally, now here we are. Incrementally is exactly it. You know, I tell people this all the time. At any given step, it probably made sense. But when you look back far enough, you got to shake your head and go, oh, gosh. Yeah, that, like, you know, this system was really started in World War II, but, you know, this was even starting to be, like, talk of reform of the system way back with Truman and then Eisenhower and Nixon. Um, what other kind of frustrations do you guys see in the system um, from either a patient standpoint or a provider standpoint? I think the... Uh... I don't know if you want to get it as far as the ACA goes, as far as the medical loss ratio is one of the interesting things when it comes to the costs of the system. This is kind of off topic of what you just asked, but it, it made me think of it. Sure. So this idea, this idea that um, uh, insurance companies have to, so much of their revenue has to go towards patient care. Um, so what is it? 80% or whatever has to go towards patient care. And then at least, you know, 20% or so can go towards administrative costs and, you know, salaries and all that kind of stuff. 
so insurances are, are mandated to put so much money into patient care, you know, what's, what's necessarily the incentive to lower costs in that scenario? Uh, it, there really is no incentive to lower costs for, for patients or for anybody um, because the more they bill, the, you know, the more they charge for premiums, the more they charge in general, you know, they've only can make up 20% of what they get, you know, at, at most. So it's just an interesting, interesting scenario with the ACA. You're seeing the, the Nick and Matt one, two punch here. Um, Cause <laughs> that gives me one. And I remember reading this article that was put together by a guy that works um, essentially to vet out HR firms. And so he used to be the guy in the HR firm. Now he goes and evaluates for companies that they're getting a good deal. And one of the things he was writing about, although admittedly I haven't sought out other verification of this, but he had said it's common, or at least it used to be less common now, used to be more common that hospitals would get some amount of money back or insurance would get some amount of money back from hospitals. Sorry. That's what I meant to say. So if you have a percentage where you know, you're going to get two, 3% back on everything for whatever deal you brokered, then there's really no incentive. You know, hospitals can keep upcharging. They're going to get more insurance companies are going to get more. And one of the, my favorite parts, which is a little different, but he was talking about, he was looking at these quote unquote lab units and we've named several labs, you know, when we've been talking to this. And the reality is there's no such thing as a lab unit. But when the company got the report back to say, well, where did our money go? They would say, oh, look, you bought $100,000 worth of lab units. But they have no idea what that means. But they think that's a thing. And so the whole idea that I know we're going to get into of transparency just doesn't exist. You know, no one really knows what they're buying. And it's hard to point the fingers at any one party and say, wow, you're the problem. You're the ones hiding this because it's just so convoluted. Yeah, um, but we could, we could probably point some fingers and be pretty close. But still, <laughs> there's a good one. Matt, what's that statistic I always ask you for? Uh, the one. <laughs> uh, he knows. You know the one. <laughs> the one statistic. Oh, did you bring up something about like quality metrics or quality guidelines? Is that what you're talking about? That's the one. The only one. Um, yeah, so there was the HEDIS guidelines. This, I think it came out in 2016 or whatnot, as far as um, like what, what quality metrics or what quality things should we follow as physicians and as insurance try to implement so we can get payment from insurance company to say we're doing the right thing. And the quality, the study came out and I think there were 83 different metrics that we're supposed to follow and only 36 of them were evidence-based. So roughly, you know, uh, it's just so like 40 percent of of what we're supposed to be doing and what we're supposed to follow is evidence based. And the rest of it is just, well, you know, expert opinion or or X, Y, Z, whatever. But only a, less than half of what we're doing from an insurance standpoint to fit these quality metrics and do all these things are actually evidence based. Right. So we're getting they're you know, them being the payers. Um, you know, you kind of have to follow what they're the big guys. Right. So you have to follow what they say or else they're just not going to pay you. Um, so that's kind of the bigger part of the bigger aspect from the insurance thing is we're doing things from a provider standpoint that, uh, that we may not necessarily agree with. Um, and that, that kind of hits home a little bit for a lot of people. Well, and I'm in all honesty, I'm not completely above showing the patient what I have on the computer. I, I feel like, Hey, here's, here's the questions I'm asking you. Um, and sometimes I'll ask you why, why, you know, why, why am I taking my shoes off to get a diabetic foot exam? I just had it in November and it's February. Oh, well, it's a new year and the hospital really wants me to get this out of the way so that you, in case you don't show up for eight months, we still get paid. You know, what happens, what happens if you have a patient whose blood pressure is perfect? 
all year, but they come in on New Year's Eve and their blood pressure is a little high because they hurt their foot. Well, they don't count anymore. They're non-compliant. You don't get paid for that year. Um, now that's based on percentages of compliance and all these things. But again, I, it's, you know, I, I tell people if you come in with, there's the list, right? For a long time, people have been told, go to your doctor with a list. If you come in with 10 things and I have like five things, I think we should really talk about for your health. And the insurance tells me I've got 10 things to talk about. Well, now we have 25 things to try to cram into what, maybe 20 minutes, assuming that you get, you know, everything goes perfectly. No one ahead of you was late. Um, you know, everything went well. And I think that actually that right there might be my biggest frustration is coming into the room and I'm behind because, you know, it's kind of this mill where you have to see as many people as you can and three people in the morning were late. And now I'm behind because of that. But the underlying assumption is that I'm the one being slow and I might've just caught up, you know, I might be think, patting myself on the back. Okay, good. <laughs> and you walk in the room and, and someone's mad at you. Yeah, right. <laughs> But if someone's mad at you, and I'll usually explain to them, you know, sorry, you know, things, this isn't, sorry, accountants, but my go-to is, you know, this isn't an accounting firm. Things don't go completely scheduled. Of course, they don't there either, but. No, no, it's a tough system. So I, I like that. So that's Nick's number one complaint. What's Matt's uh, <laughs> number one complaint? Uh, what's my number one complaint? Jeez. Yeah. Um, I would say that. So access to your doctor specifically would be my number one complaint. Awesome. So not seeing, not being able to see the same patients over and over and over. If I develop a plan and then they go somewhere else and then I never know what happens with it. That's part of why I got into family medicine, right? It's just, I, I love the continuity and seeing families and people over and over and over. So if I can't see the same family, I, I just, it's, it's frustrating. Yeah, man, that's a good one. Um, and it's worse for the patient if you don't see them over and over and over again, too. And and I think that's real fair. All right, Andrew, what's your number one complaint? Uh, I think I'd say overall just complete opaqueness or just lack of transparency and cost transparency to the patient where we've, you know, we've hit on this a couple times in, in different ways, but it is absolutely just absurd that a uh, an individual and we, we call them patients, but we treat them like customers and that a customer could walk in and receive a service and has no absolute clue what that service is going to cost them before they walk out. And in fact, even if they want to be cost uh, conscious and want to ask us, we have absolutely no clue of how to answer that to them. Uh, there's, I can't think of any other business that operates that way where you would walk you would walk in you would agree to a service you'd and have that completed and then have the bill that you have to pay and if you don't pay it then it goes to collections there that doesn't happen in my mechanics office that doesn't happen in my veterinarian's office that doesn't happen anywhere else that i go and that's a problem and in all seriousness, I know what I just said, but that, I'm going to second that as my, my real number one. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks, Dr. <laughs> all right. All right, gentlemen. I want to thank you for um, being on the podcast for this episode. Well, uh, are you going to tell us your number one? Oh, shoot. Um, you know what? You know, my number one is kind of like um, a combination of, of all your guys's is that. Cop out. Cop out. Oh, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> 
is uh, that like this is so easy. If you think about it from a health insurance standpoint, it's so easy to lose the patient in a lot of ways because um, if if the patient is paying more for their care to help people that are gaming the system and getting subpar care as a result um, and their doctor is frustrated by the system and spends less time with them because they're having to play this game with the insurance company of, of ticking these boxes off, you know, the patient is the one that loses every time. And, and so that's why this is a messed up healthcare system. That's why insurance is a messed up system. And that's why we have to do something about it. Amen. I want to clarify two things about that. Just, uh, just in closing in my previous statement, I made a, uh, uh, statement which said that we call them patients and we treat them like customers. I, I do want to clarify that and say that we treat them like customers and that we absolutely shouldn't and we we want to restore that relationship between the doctor and the patient and it's the it's this side of things, this insurance side, this billing side that gets in the way of that. So that's what I meant when I said that. And the other thing that I, I wanted to, I, I certainly don't want to put any words in uh, Dr. Dave's mouth here, but when he mentioned the, the words of uh, people paying more in order to cover people who are gaming the system, my, my interpretation or my understanding of, of what he means by that is, again, it's people who are responding to the incentives of the system and are trying to minimize their own costs. Those are people who are gaming the system. Sure. They're not necessarily cheats or they're not right. necessarily per- people that need to be demonized or villainized. They are no. patients trying to make their way in the system. That's a really good point, Dr. Andrew. Is like, so that could have come off really badly. And so I appreciate the correction as like, you know, everyone wants to do the most cost effective and easiest thing for themselves. I mean, that's just the way it should be. Um, but um, we have to create a system that's equitable for everyone. Um, so thank you, doctors, for coming on the podcast today. And um, and are you guys game for coming back? And we can kind of spitball some ideas of ways to fix this health insurance stuff in the future. We'd love to. Awesome. Oh, yeah. Perfect. Looking forward to it. All right, guys. Well, um, thanks again for coming on, and um, we'll talk to you soon. To give a little bit of, you know, maybe an individual color to it, maybe it's not a perfect example, but of what it's like a little bit from the patient experience, and and it certainly uh, plays into exactly what uh, Dr. Dave here is talking about, is just last week, uh, I stepped on a nail and I reviewed my uh, shot records, and it had been nine years since my last tetanus shot. So given that I now have a, you know, had an exposure wound, uh, I needed to have had one in the last five years, so I needed to go ahead and get that up to date. I felt comfortable with the way, with the wound itself, so I felt that I only needed to get that tetanus up to date. I have insurance. I have insurance that is through a large local system so what i did is i called that insurer and i said if do i if i go to get my tetanus shot 
will that be covered? Will that be paid for as it is something that is uh, a necessary expense? And in fact, would be, you know, under potentially under a routine care. And they said, yes, it would be covered. Okay, great. Does it have to be done through a regularly scheduled doctor's office because it is something that shouldn't be delayed too long? And they said, absolutely, it has to be done within our, the system. And I said, okay, if I go anywhere else, will this be would will this be paid for by any extent? And they said, absolutely not. So then, what I I started calling around and shopping around for the best cash price. And what I was coming up with was around uh, anywhere from about 50 to $70 for the cash price to get a uh, tetanus uh, Tdap. When I called to one of the pharmacies, they said, well, why don't we just run our, our your insurance? And I said, okay, I've already talked to them. They told me it's, it's not going to be covered, but let's go ahead and Sure, we can do it. So we, we go through the whole process, and she says, well, actually, it's it looks like it's covered. And I said, okay, that, um, that surprises me, but um, let me go ahead and come in. So in the meantime, I, I call back to my insurance, and I, I say, you know, I just call, spoke with the pharmacist, and they told me if I come in and get this, get this administered, it'll be covered completely. And she said, absolutely. And I said, that, that's confusing to me because I was just told that it wasn't. And she said, no, no, no it'll be covered under your pharmacy benefit. <laughs> considering it's separate from your preventative or healthcare office benefit. And so here it is. I am a physician who is uh, relatively well-versed in this system. And I have now wasted about two hours of my time being making phone calls being told that that something will be covered won't be covered which is something that all of us agrees needs to be done in order to uh prevent by you know worsening illness and therefore higher bills for the system but now i've wasted two hours of my time and then go in and still end up getting it covered which was wonderful but that i didn't have to pay the cash price but Again, this is perfectly, an, to me, an example of what it's like as a patient to uh, go through this this system of, of phone calls and questions and question marks. And this is coming from the perspective of something as absolutely as simple as trying to get a tetanus booster from the perspective of uh, an individual who's well-versed in the system. Well, and that kind of rat race, I mean, what's better than when the patient does come in for something? So oh, I, I think if you call the insurance company, it'll go better. And we all know that's, that's just not true. Yeah, it's just the same rat race. And that's why the patient needs to call. Okay. Yeah, getting on the whole vaccine thing. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of kids who are um, kids, adults, whoever, who are on Medicaid. So there's a I'm not sure if it's a federal program or statewide program, but the VFC program, so oh. vaccines for children. Um, and, and one of my sons happens to be on Medicaid. So certain offices don't offer these vaccines because you have, you have to take such rigorous documentation and rigorous notes of these immunizations. And there's so much required from the federal program 
that some offices just don't offer them because a either nobody wants to do it or b they just don't want to hire someone to do it because it's an extra cost so it's oftentimes the fqhc clinics and you know the community clinics and whatnot that offer these these vaccines because they're the only places that can do it or, or decide that they want to do it um so you know one of my sons has to go to the health department to get his vaccines and then the other son has to go goes to his you know private insurance-based doctor to get his vaccines because he's on the marketplace plan. It's just a little bit silly how, how that works too. Well, and again, mutually frustrating. I definitely, I tend to sit in the nursing area and where the vaccines are at our part-time job, I guess you call it. And I can't tell you the number of times, especially during flu season, they'll say, do we have any more of the, um, what's the abbreviation, Matt, for the ones that are Medicaid? Oh, VFC. VFC, thank you. Um, we're, we're all out. Well, what do we do? I told them to get the vaccine. They can pay for it or they'll have to go somewhere else. And we're the only clinic in town that would have them in the first place. So it's just, it's a no win in those situations. Yeah. So, which I, I think, again, this, this highlights one of these uh, very interesting uh, maybe that's not the that's the diplomatic word for this, but uh, <laughs> concept of the system where we have we've developed this system with so many different, uh, you know, little avenues of delivery of care that now have kind of, you know, attempted to coalesce into a system that sort of works together and sort of tries to meet the needs for something like preventative vaccines that almost universally as a society, we would agree are, uh, a good thing and are helpful and should be we should remove absolutely every single barrier that we can in order to make sure that these sort of sorts of uh, preventative vaccines can be administered without without hesitation without delay and without significant uh, barrier to uh, to acceptance or to adherence or compliance no absolutely and Really, when Nick and I talk about this a lot, but really there's a few things that the system doesn't offer, um, the insurance-based system, as we call it, and one of them is is accessibility. So whether that's, you know, essentially when we talk about that, I, I think about that as access to your doctor, right? So if someone wants to, so Dave, if you have a patient who wants to get a hold of you, how are they going to do it? Um, you know, you're in a little bit different setting, but if you were in an outpatient setting, it becomes relatively difficult. So if you're the patient, you may call the front desk, you know, line or the number. You might wait on line, you know, wait on hold for 10, 15 minutes. You might click button two, but then realize that wasn't the button you wanted to hit. So then you wait another 10 minutes to get through. And then you talk to someone on the phone. They're going to send a message to the to the doctor's staff. Mm-hmm. The doctor's staff is going to review it maybe by the end of the day, but probably, you know, by the next day. And then they'll finally get another message out to the doctor and say, well, what do you want to do with this? And the doctor may come back with, well, let's do this. Or they may say, well, ask them about this. So you're playing a whole email message, phone game back with patients. And it may be three, four, five, seven days until you finally get an answer to maybe one simple question. Uh, and that's nothing but frustrating from a from a patient standpoint. Um, but there's also a lot of things frustrating from the provider standpoint when, you know, it could just be a simple someone has a question about a medication or someone has a question about whatever, or someone wants their doctor to see them because they've always been the one to see them. 
there's a lot of different models of care, whether it's team-based care or, or, you know, whatever, but, you know, you're not always going to be able to see your doctor And a lot. That's one of the biggest complaints that I see um, is that people just, you're just not able to see your doctor. You may have seen them once or twice, and then you get passed around the whoever's either, you know, in the clinic that day or, or, you know, you get, you just don't always see the same person. And a lot of people like continuity when it comes to their health care. I mean, they should have continuity in their health care. Sure. And I, I, we're getting a little bit off topic as far as the, the health insurance side of it. But I think that's what we're going to talk about next time. Um, a little segue for, uh, <laughs> for the next episode are some of the solutions to our like standard health insurance uh, situation. But I think you bring up a really good point um, as far as the kind of the, the bureaucracy and the structure of healthcare doesn't make any damn sense either because you have, we're essentially these healthcare costs are so darn high too, because we have to employ more people to try to navigate this difficult health insurance system. There's a good one, Matt. What's that statistic I always ask you for? The uh, one. <laughs> he knows. You know the one. <laughs> the one statistic. Oh, did you bring up something about like quality metrics or quality guidelines? Is that what you're talking about? That's the one. The only one. Um, yeah. So there was the HEDIS guidelines. This I think it came out in 2016 or whatnot. As far as um, like what what quality metrics or what quality things should we follow as physicians? And as insurance try to implement so we can get payment from insurance company to say we're doing the right thing. And the quality, the study came out and I think there were 83 different metrics that we're supposed to follow and only 36 of them were evidence-based. So roughly, you know, uh, it's just so like 40% of, of what we're supposed to be doing or what we're supposed to follow is evidence-based and the rest of it is just, well, you know, expert opinion or, or XYZ, whatever. But only a less than half of what we're doing from an insurance standpoint to fit these quality metrics and do all these things are actually evidence-based. Right. So we're getting they're you know, them being the payers um, you know, you kind of have to follow what they're the big guys, right? So you have to follow what they say or else they're just not going to pay you. Um, so that's kind of the bigger part of the bigger aspect from the insurance thing is we're doing things from a provider standpoint that, uh, that we may not necessarily agree with. Um, and that, that kind of hits home a little bit for a lot of people. Well, and I'm, in all honesty, I'm not completely above showing the patient what I have on the computer. And I, I feel like, hey, here's, here's the questions I'm asking you. Um, and sometimes I'll ask you, why? why? You know, why, why am I taking my shoes off to get a diabetic foot exam? I just had it in November and it's February. Oh, well, it's a new year and the hospital really wants me to get this out of the way so that you, in case you don't show up for eight months, we still get paid. You know, what happens, what happens if you have a patient whose blood pressure is perfect? all year, but they come in on New Year's Eve and their blood pressure is a little high because they hurt their foot. Well, they don't count anymore. They're non-compliant. You don't get paid for that year. Um, now, that's based on percentages of compliance and all these things. But again, I, it's, you know, I, I tell people, if you come in with, there's the list, right? For a long time, people have been told, go to your doctor with a list. If you come in with 10 things, and I have like five things I think we should really talk about for your health. And the insurance tells me I've got 10 things to talk about. Well, now we have 25 things to try to cram into what, maybe 20 minutes, assuming that you get, you know, everything goes perfectly. No one ahead of you was late. Um, you know, everything went well. And I think that actually that right there might be my biggest frustration is coming into the room and I'm behind because, you know, it's kind of this mill where you have to see as many people as you can and three people in the morning were late. And now I'm behind because of that. 
but the underlying assumption is that I'm the one being slow and I might've just caught up, you know, I might be think, patting myself on the back. Okay, good. <laughs> and you walk in the room and, and someone's mad at you. Yeah, right. But it's someone's mad at you. And, and I'll usually explain to them, you know, sorry, you know, things, this isn't, sorry, accountants, but my go-to is, you know, this isn't an accounting firm. Things don't go completely scheduled. Of course they don't there either, but. No, no, it's a tough system. So I, I like that. So that's, Nick's number one complaint. What's uh, Matt's number one complaint? Uh, what's my number one complaint? Yeah. Um, geez. I would say that, so access to your doctor specifically would be my number one complaint. Awesome. So not seeing, not being able to see the same patients over and over and over. If I develop a plan and then they go somewhere else and then I never know what happens with it. That's part of why I got into family medicine, right? It's just, I, I love the continuity and seeing families and people over and over and over. So if I can't see the same family, I, I just, it's, it's frustrating. Yeah, man, that's a good one. Um, and it's worse for the patient if you don't see them over and over and over again too. And, and I think that's real fair. All right, Andrew, what's your number one complaint? Uh, I think I'd say overall just complete opaqueness or just lack of transparency and cost transparency to the patient where we, you know, we've hit on this a couple times in, in different ways, but it is absolutely just absurd that a, uh, a, an individual and we, we call them patients, but we treat them like customers and that a customer could walk in and receive a service and has no absolute clue what that service is going to cost them before they walk out. And in fact, even if they want to be cost uh, conscious and want to ask us, we have absolutely no clue of how to answer that to them. Uh, there's, I can't think of any other business that operates that way where you would walk, you would walk in, you would agree to a service you'd, and have that completed and then have the bill that you have to pay. And if you don't pay it, then it goes to collections. There that doesn't happen in my mechanic's office. That doesn't happen in my veterinarian's office. That doesn't happen anywhere else that I go. And that's a problem. And in all seriousness, I know what I just said, but that, I'm going to second that as my, my real number one. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks, Dr. <laughs> <laughs> all, right, all right, gentlemen. I want to thank you for um, being on the podcast for this episode. Well, uh, number are you going to tell us your number one? Oh, shit. <laughs> Um, you know what, you know, my number one is kind of like, um, a combination of, of all your guys is, is that cap out, cap out. No, hold on, hold on, hold on, is, uh, that like, this is so easy. If you think about it from a health insurance standpoint, it's so easy to lose the patient in a lot of ways, because, um, if, if the patient is paying more for their care, to help people that are gaming the system and getting subpar care as a result. Um, and their doctor is frustrated by the system and spends less time with them because they're having to play this game with the insurance company of, of ticking these boxes off. You know, the patient is the one that loses every time. And, and so that's why this is a messed up healthcare system. That's why insurance is a messed up system. And that's why we have to do something about it. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I want to clarify two things about that. Just uh, just in closing, in my previous statement, I made a uh, uh, statement which said that we call them patients, and we treat them like customers. I, I do want to clarify that and say that we treat them like customers and that we absolutely shouldn't. And we we want to restore that relationship between the doctor and the patient. And it's the it's this side of things, this insurance side, this billing side that gets in the way of that. So that's what I meant when I said that. And the other thing that I, I wanted to, I, I certainly don't want to put any words in uh, Dr. Dave's mouth here, but when he mentioned the, the words of uh, people paying more in order to cover people who are gaming the system, my, my interpretation or my understanding of, of what he means by that is, again, it's people who are responding to the incentives of the system and are trying to minimize their own costs. Those are people who are gaming the system. Sure. They're not necessarily cheats or they're not right. necessarily per people that need to be demonized or villainized. They are no. patients trying to make their way in the system. That's a really good point, Dr. Andrews. Like, so that could have come off really badly. And so I appreciate the correction is like, you know, everyone wants to do the most cost effective and easiest thing for themselves. I mean, that's just the way it should be. Um, but um, we have to create a system that's equitable for everyone. Um, so thank you doctors for coming on the podcast today. And, um, and are you guys game for coming back and we can kind of spitball some ideas of, ways to fix this health insurance stuff in the future we'd love to awesome oh yeah Perfect. looking forward to it all right guys well um thanks again for coming on and um we'll talk to you soon if you like this podcast cool click the subscribe button and the furthest right hand star to leave a rating and tell some friends and I will see you next time to discuss more of what ails you.